This week on the show, we are comparing sandboxing techniques, a statement on the FreeBSD's development processes. We are also customizing FreeBSD points and packages a little bit. The quest for a comfortable NetBSD desktop is what we show you. And Nginx as a TCP UDP relay is an interesting one. The Harden BSD March 2021 status report. We have detailed behaviors of Unix signals as well, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 399, Comparing Sandboxes, recorded on the 7th of April, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backups for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to another episode, right before the big 400, um, <laughs> with interesting headlines, as always, for you. So we should get right into it. Comparing Sandboxing Techniques. Yep. So over on uh, their website here, Omar Polo has written uh, about comparing these sandboxing techniques. He said, I had the opportunity to implement a sandbox and I'd like to write about the differences between various sandboxing techniques available on the three different operating systems I was targeting, FreeBSD, Linux, and OpenBSD. The scope of this entry is sandboxing GMID, which is a single-threaded server for the Gemini protocol. It serves static files and uh, optionally executes uh, CGI scripts. Before, the daemon was a single process listing on port 1965 and eventually forked to execute CGI scripts. All of this was managed by a poll-based event loop. Now, the daemon is split into two processes. The listener, as the name suggests, listens on port 1965 and is sandboxed with the executor process, stays out of the sandbox and executes the CGI scripts on demand on behalf of the listener process. This separation allowed uh, to execute arbitrary CGI scripts while still keeping the benefit of a sandbox network process. So I want to focus on sandboxing techniques used to limit the listener process on various operating systems. So first, uh, Capsicum on FreeBSD. It's probably the easiest of the three to understand, but also uh, the least flexible. Capsicum allows the process to enter a sandbox where only certain operations are allowed. For instance, after you cap enter, open is disallowed, and one can only open files uh, using openat relative to a directory they already have open. Openat itself is restricted in a way that you cannot open files outside of a given directory. For example, you can't open at dot dot and escape the sandbox. So it's kind of like a stage right there. The disabled syscalls won't kill the process, as happens with pledge or seccom. Well, you can set a sysctl so they do, but that's mostly for during development. Uh, but instead, we'll return an error. Uh, this can be both an advantage and a disadvantage, as it may lead the program to execute a code path that wasn't thoroughly tested and possibly expose bugs because of it. Using Capsicum isn't hard, but requires some preparation. The general rule you have to follow is preemptively open every resource you might need before entering the sandbox. Sandboxing GMID with Capsicum required almost no changes to the code, except for the execution of CGI scripts. The daemon was only using OpenAT uh, and except to obtain new file descriptors. Uh, so adding Capsicum support was only a matter of calling cap enter before the main loop. Splitting the daemon into two processes was needed to allow the execution of CGI scripts, but turned out was also useful for pledge and Cefcomp as well. Now comparing to OpenBSD with its pledge and unveil, 
Pledge and Unveil are two syscalls provided by the OpenBSD kernel to limit which er, limit what processes can do in C. They aren't really a sandbox technique, but are so closely related to the argument that uh, they're usually considered one. With Pledge, a process tells the kernel from that moment onward it will only do a certain subcategory of things. Uh, for instance, the cat program on OpenBSD before the main loop has a pledge of standard IO and RPath. This means from now on, I will only do IO on already open files, like standard IO, and open new files as read only, RPath. If pledge gets violated, the kernel kills the program with SIG abort and logs the pledge violation. One key feature of pledge is that it is possible to drop privileges as you go. For example, you can start with pledges A, B, and C, and after a while, another pledge call of just A and C, and you will now not be able to do B anymore. I think Capsicum can do the same thing. I think you can discard privileges. Anyway, however, you cannot gain new privileges. Unveil is a natural complement to pledge as it is used to limit the portion of the file system a process can access. One important aspect of both pledge and unveil is that they are reset when you execute a new program. This is why I'm not going to strictly categorize them as sandboxing methods. Nevertheless, this aspect is, in my opinion, one big demonstration of pragmatism and the reason Pledge and Unveil are more widespread, even as software not developed with OpenBSD in mind. On Unix, we have various programs that are, or act, like shells. Uh, we consequently fork and exec other programs that do stuff that we don't want to do. Also, most programs follow or can easily be modified to do an initialization phase where they require access to various places in the file system and a lot of capabilities, and then a main loop phase where they only do a couple of things. This means that it's actually impossible to sandbox certain programs with Capsicum or with SecComp while it's dead easy with Pledge. Uh, take a shell for instance. You cannot Capsicumize CSH uh, and you can't SecComp bash, but you can Pledge KSH. OpenBSD is the only OS where both the GMID process and listener uh, sorry, the, both GMID processes, the listener and executor, are sandbox. The listener runs with the standard IO, receive file descriptor, RPath, and INET pledge, and can only see the directories that it serves. And the executor runs with standard IO, send FD, proc, and exec. Uh, to conclude, pledge is more like a complement to the compiler, a sort of runtime check that you really do what you promise to do and not use additional syscalls. And then finally, comparing Linux with SecComp. Uh, SecComp is huge. It's the most flexible and complex method of sandboxing I know of, and is also the least pleasant one to work with, but was fun nonetheless. SecComp allows you to write a script in a particular language, uh, BPF, the Berkeley Packet Filter Runtime, uh, that gets executed in the kernel before every syscall. This script can decide to allow or disallow the system call to kill the program or to return an error. It can control the behavior of your program. Oh, and they are inherited by the children of your program, so you can control them too. The BPF programs are designed to be secure, to run kernel-side. They aren't Turing-complete, as they have conditional jumps, but you can only jump forward and a maximum allowed size. Uh, so you know for certain that BPF programs from now on, called filters, will complete and take, at worst, n amount of time. Uh, BPF programs are also validated to ensure that every possible code path ends with a return. These filters can access the system call number and the parameters. One important restriction is that the filters can read the parameters but not dereference pointers. This means they're not allowed to. That means you can't you cannot disallow open if the first argument is slash TMP, but you can allow IOCTL only on file descriptors 1, 5, and 27. 
and so on. And they have some more examples of what that looks like. That's interesting to see the capabilities of each of these. Yeah, and so you can basically disallow certain syscalls kind of something like pledge. Uh, and then wrapping up, he says, I'm not a security expert, so you should take my words with a huge grain of salt. But I think that if you want to try to build secure systems, you should try to make these uh, important security mechanisms as easy as possible without defeating the purpose. If a security mechanism is, mechanism is easy enough to understand, to apply, and to debug, we can expect to be, it to be picked up by a large number of people and everyone benefit from it. That is what I like about the OpenBSD system. Over the years, um, to try... They tried to come up with simpler solutions to common problems. So now you have things like realloc array, sterile cat, sterile copy, stir to num, etc. Small things that make errors difficult uh, to code. You may criticize pledge and unveil, but one important and objective point to note is how easy they are to add to an existing program. Uh, you have Windows managers, shells, servers, utilities, and so on that run under pledge, but I don't know a single window manager that can run under seccomp. Talking in particular about Linux, the only Current seccomp implementation in GMID is half of the line of codes of the first version of the daemon itself. Just as you cannot achieve security through obscurity, you cannot realize it with complexity either. At the end of the day, there isn't really a considerable difference between obscurity and complexity. Anyway, thank you for reading, and it's been a fun journey. And I think I agree, like, if, if the security stuff is so complicated that it becomes error-prone, then it's more likely to introduce more problems than it is to solve any. Yeah keep it simple as far as you can be in in this kind of space and you know the the criticism they have of capsicum is valid uh capsicum in general is very good but you do have to design your program with it in mind uh it's a lot harder to adapt an existing program to meet the requirements of capsicum whereas if you're building a new program you can generally you know think about it the way capsicum is going to want it and and be able to do that um, but you know, I've definitely thought of things where it's been a bit more complicated. Like, you know, if I can't make a new connection, how do I make an HTTP client that can follow a redirect and might actually have to connect to a second website? But at the same time, how is that different than letting the program just connect to any arbitrary website? Right. It's and so yeah. yeah, it gets it gets complicated very quickly. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a I think was a good and fair overview of the different. Uh, Sandboxing frameworks. Yep. And uh, next we have a statement on FreeBSD's development processes. Uh, so this is from FreeBSD's core team. Uh, Mark Johnson posted this, uh, but it's generally um, from the whole core team. So he writes, Dear FreeBSD community, in light of the recent commentary on FreeBSD's development practices, members of the core team would like to issue the following statement. So this is in regards to uh, the Ars Technica article and the WireGuard um, drama, I would say. Um, Code quality is an essential FreeBSD value. From the 1980s, when work on BSD became the de facto standard TCP IP stack, to our more recent work around performance scalability on multi-core, attention to detail is critical. The recent concerns regarding the WireGuard patches remind us that our development processes must always continue to mature. While the project has historically and aggressively led the way in adopting new development methodologies, public version control to being early adopters of static analysis tools such as Coverity, these events have brought to light a real gap that needs to be addressed. The high stability and quality of FreeBSD is a testimony to the experience of our developers. As in any open source project, we rely on developers to exercise good judgment in seeking review and committing new features, and to follow the guidelines laid out in the Committer's Guide. We made heavy use of public code review in FreeBSD 
uh, or we make heavy use of uh, public code review. And FreeBSD's developers spend a significant amount of time improving each other's contributions. We were excited to provide a kernel wire guide implementation in FreeBSD 13.0 before the if underscore w get uh, wg wg rewrite was committed several freebsd developers proactively worked on fixing bugs and writing tests and documentation for the original implementation in other words we had spent time during the releases q a period looking for problems and that unfortunately culminated in if wg being removed from 13.0 during the release cycle as FreeBSD developers, it is incumbent on each of us to support each other's work by providing code review and helping test and fix the code. This incident highlights the need to do this, more, this work more proactively and to maintain a robust multi-layered development process that can catch problems as they fall through the cracks. Over the next month, the FreeBSD core team will lead a discussion on appropriate pre-commit testing, static analysis, code review, and integration policies to avoid a repeat of the situation and to continue improving FreeBSD's code quality. We know there will be challenges in key areas such as third-party device drivers and components of the system where fewer developers have submissioned or sufficient expertise. The FreeBSD Foundation has full-time staff members participating in significant code review today and is committed to supporting the needs identified by the core team and the developer community for this effort. We look forward to input from the community on our proposals for updated policies as we move forward, maintaining high code quality as a core value for FreeBSD with core hat on Mark. Yeah, uh, I think that was very well said. You know, the FreeBSD has done a good job of, of having code review and, and working on stuff, but we can always do more. And uh, I think the, the bar is a bit higher than it used to be. Yeah. Uh, and so... The more people that provide mm -hmm. review, even if it's a non-developer with a non-FreeBSD account, they can still look over the reviews and provide comments yeah. and questions. So that's always appreciated if more that, eyes... That is why reviews.freebsd.org is open to the public. Yeah. So that's where everyone can contribute. They can also post patches or um, reviews they want to have people look at. And that way people have more eyes looking over the code, finding things before they hit the uh, actual repository. Okay, then we have a customizing FreeBSD ports and packages article from Clara Systems. It seems like we have one every week, which is good. So uh, it gives us a deeper insight into FreeBSD. And this time it's about ports and packages. Yeah, uh, so Mitchell Horn wrote this one uh, about how to customize your FreeBSD ports and packages. And he says, without a doubt, one of the most convenient tools of any modern operating system is the package manager. The ability to search, download, install a wide range of pre-built software with only a single command is unparalleled, and FreeBSD is no exception here. Uh, but as you know, most FreeBSD packages have a number of options, right? Even if you're just looking at installing Tmux, uh, there's, do you want to add the keys patch, or do you want to use the static version of the event, or do you want the documentation and examples included? Things like that. And you might want to have options that are different than the default ones that are in the public package repo. And so you can use the Pudrier tool, which is what the public repo is built with, but you can change the options. And we have a bit of a tutorial on how to do that and both how to customize individual applications, but also how to do things like set global uh, options. Like for example, I do or don't want the documentation and examples for all these packages. If I'm building a small appliance where space is at a premium, Maybe I don't need the man page for every one of the tools I install. 
and I don't need a bunch of examples and samples and so on. But if it's uh, building for a machine where people are going to be working, maybe you do want the man pages for everything available. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. And so it covers, you know, the concepts of building a jail in Poudrier, whether that's from uh, the FTP archive and being able to just uh, extract it and have one, or if you're actually, you know, building FreeBSD 14 current from Git as part of uh, setting it up. Also creating the ports tree, so uh, installing... Uh, the 2020Q1 branch from the new Git repo of FreeBSD ports, or how to use uh, the null type and actually mount a ports tree that you have somewhere else on your system. For example, if you're a ports developer and you're actually, you know, you have a Git checkout somewhere where you're actually doing your work, you can have that uh, be one of the ports trees so you can use Poudrier to do your testing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's very common. And it walks out how to do that, um, how to look at an installed system, get a list of all the packages and be able to customize all those packages uh, in your own repo. Uh, and then how to actually do the builds with different ports trees and also how to use the series of separate make.conf files. So Poudrier allows you to have a make.conf file that applies to everything, have one that only applies to a certain set or a certain port tree or a certain jail or any combination of the three. So you can say, you know, only for the FreeBSD 12.2 jail, on the development ports tree for the set called web server, do I want to change the default uh, web server to Apache instead of Nginx or something like that? Uh, and you can layer these in order to have uh, as much of your configuration be common, but still be able to specialize where you need to. Mm. You know, the biggest thing I do is changing the default versions uh, stanza in the make.conf and say, you know, uh, for all my packages, I want, you know, PHP 7.4, and I want MariaDB instead of MySQL, and I want this version of Postgres, and this version of Ruby, and that version of Perl, mm. uh, which may be more or less uh, new than the defaults. You know, I need cutting-edge Perl, but uh, I don't want the cutting-edge Ruby or whatever. Yeah, and you can uh, like have a, your own internal repository, and you can link that to your um, you know, freebsd.conf to say, please pull from this uh, repository and get the packages from there that I just built. That's also what uh, Poudria provides. Yeah, you know, we use that at, at Scale Engine to have uh, our packages built, uh, and so it's very easy when we, you know, when the OpenSSL vulnerability came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, it was very easy to uh, pull that latest update in, recompile everything with the newer OpenSSL, and just be able to do a package upgrade on all of our servers, restart Nginx, and now. Uh, all of our web servers are good. Mm -hmm. Or in a company setting where you have an LDAP directory and most of these packages don't have LDAP configured, you set up your own Poudrier with the LDAP option always set so that each of these packages has the LDAP support and then uh, all your machines that pull from that repository uh, have LDAP support. Right. Or, you know, in our case, uh, we had a mix of FreeBSD versions and so it's easier to have all of them use OpenSSL from ports instead of the one in base so they all have the latest in support TLS 1.3 and so on. Yeah. And Poudrier makes this easy and uh, another nice way of um, running a lot of processes on your machine. It's kind of a benchmark of sorts. Um, it can really uh, stretch that machine's resources to the limit. But it's, yeah, it's very efficient in doing that. All right, then uh, it's time for the news roundup this week. We have FVWM and a quest for a comfortable NetBSD desktop. Ooh, uh, over at unitedbsd.com. Uh, they write that the F Virtual Binder Manager is an EW 
MH and ICCCM compliant stacking window manager for X11. Its configuration involves editing plain text files from the official GitHub uh, mirror description. FVWM is intended to have a small memory footprint, but a rich feature set, extremely customizable and extendable and have a high degree of motive MWM compatibility. So FVWM substantially allows one to build a fully-fledged lightweight desktop environment from scratch with an almost unparalleled degree of freedom. Although uh, it does not require any knowledge of programming languages, is it, pos it is possible to extend it with M4, C, and Perl preprocessing. Oh, okay, that's okay, that's special. Yeah. Uh, so in September 2020, yeah. so nice flat text config files, but <laughs> maybe you want to use a programming language to write the config file for you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so their third major version came out in September 2020. Um, so that was finally released. And as a consequence, this guide uh, has been updated to use that latest version. So you make install clean in the user package source, in this case, wm uh, and slash fwm3 directory. And once you have that installed, most of the settings below can be easily interpreted by looking up their uh, man page. Um, nonetheless, function and bindings can provide, yeah, can be quite hard to understand at first sight. So they have a little bit of a description here for the function syntax. Ah, so that there is a mapping for each button and for each key that you press, each e either on the keyboard or on the mouse. So either it's a modifier, um, and, and well, you provide a context, a modifier, and an action, and then the associate key with it or button that it should press. And they list the valid modifiers, the context, and the mouse buttons, because nowadays mouses have more than one button. And so uh, you can precisely configure that to your needs. And they talk a bit about how to um, start some initial tasks. So first, you need to create a couple of directories. So uh, icons, images, scripts, temp, and wallpapers. So you create that in your .fwm uh, directory, in your home directory. And so then it finds all the uh, directories it needs and then you start your fwmrc config file which is the main config one that is parsed upon starting off the desktop manager or the window manager and there you can say oh uh, i want my favorite terminal in there or please start the, the browser at uh, startup or i want to have uh, three pixel screen edges in this case and they provide the whole config file or at least some examples Oh, it's really a long config file here. I have to scroll a lot. Um, <laughs> and so you can uh, configure stuff like auto X R and R, change XKB map, so to change your keyboard map, uh, random wallpaper, uh, clipboard, change the title of the windows to say what kind of application it's currently running. So it's very basic, but you can configure it definitely to your needs in every kind of way. Colors, of course, is a whole different thing. You can make all kinds of color changes. Uh, so it's very, very basic. But once you've been through it, you can probably um, configure any other window manager in, in detail. And they provide a, a screenshot at the end how it looks. So it's a whole big uh, config file. But once you go through it, you can make your own changes to it. And it looks like um, a nice window manager or a nice desktop at the end. Ah, next is nice. We have found an Nginx as a TCP IP relay 
uh, how-to or tutorial for you. Yep. So this was written by uh, Soline, and she's got uh, lots of good stuff. We've covered a number of things in the past. But they say, in this tutorial, I will explain how to use Nginx as a TCP or UDP relay as an alternative to using something like HAProxy or RelayD. This means Nginx will be able to accept requests on a port, and that's TCP or UDP, and relay it to another backend without knowing about the content. It also permits to negotiate a TLS session with the client and relay it to a non-TLS backend. Uh, in this example, I will explain how to configure Nginx to accept TLS requests to transmit to a Gemini server uh, called Viger. Nice. And the Gemini protocol has TLS as a requirement. So it actually gels a bit with the thing we talked about before. I, I noticed that when I noticed the port was the same. But actually, I had to do this uh, very recently uh, in order to do video streaming over TLS. The video streaming server software is this terrible Java monstrosity, and uh, you'd have to restart the daemon completely to change the SSL certificate, which is really inconvenient with uh, Let's Encrypt. So we use an Nginx in front of it uh, using this exact same method they're describing here, except for we use port 1935 instead of 1965 <laughs> uh, to accept the connections with TLS and then proxy them over localhost to the daemon running not uh, TLS. And it works very well, and it doesn't have to know anything about the protocol. You know, Nginx doesn't have to know that it's video streaming or Gemini or something completely different. Uh, so it's important to understand in this context, Nginx is actually not doing HTTP. And uh, you'll see in the config file how it's actually in a completely separate block of the config file uh, from the HTTP bits. So installation. On OpenBSD, we need to, uh, to grab the package nginx-stream. If you are unsure about which package is required for your system, search your package manager for what provides the nginx stream module.so. To enable nginx at boot, they used rcctl. So in our case, we actually compile nginx with the stream module built in, but uh, it is very convenient to use nginx with its DSO module where they're loadable because it means you can have separate packages for the additional things. It makes it easier, you know, with Nginx having, I think, almost 100 optional packages or optional uh, plugins, uh, having something that has all of them is really gnarly. Uh, so, yes, you can use the DSL for that. Anyway, in the configuration section, uh, basically, in a, a default Nginx.conf, you're going to have, you know, worker processes and then your event thing and then a block called HTTP. In this case, we have an extra block called stream where you can actually put all the settings for the streaming mode instead of the HTTP mode. I think Nginx also has a, an email mode for doing IMAP uh, for reasons. Um, <laughs> okay. And if you're using the DSO, you also need the load underscore module part at the top of your config to load the stream module so that you can actually invoke that stream instance. But in the stream uh, stanza, you have the same stuff you would have in your HTTP one. You define your logging format, You know what fields and what order you want to have where to put your log files. You can define upstreams, you can define a server, you listen on a port and set the SSL flag and use the same SSL underscore certificate lines to configure the certificate. And you do a proxy pass in the same way. It's just, it's going to not be uh, HTTP or HTTPS, it will be raw TCP or UDP instead. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And they say in the previous configuration file, the backend defines uh, the destination, in their case, uh, localhost on port 11, 965 instead of 1965. You can also define multiple servers, so you can use it as a load balancer, and you can have waits and timeouts, and you can set it backup only. So always go to this process unless it's down, then fall over to this other one, things like that. All the normal goodness you get with Nginx. The server block will tell it which port Nginx should listen on uh, and whether it should handle 
uh, TLS or, you know, the keyword is still SSL because of history, but uh, usually TLS configuration can be used here. So anything you would put in your normal HTTP config of like about which TLS um, algorithms and, and hashes and so on to use. Uh, the configuration file also defines a custom log format that is used for TLS connections. It includes the remote host, the backend destination, the connection status, how many bytes are transferred, and how long the connection was open. So uh, they also have a little set of awk lines in here where they can actually look at, you know, uh, the total number of bytes transferred or the median time that the connection was open and cool stuff like that. Uh, or they even built one here, how to find bad clients with awk. Sometimes in the logs, there are clients that obtain a status of 500, meaning the TLS connection wasn't established correctly. So that might be somebody trying to connect uh, plain text without TLS or something. It may be uh, some scanner that doesn't try to do TLS, or it could be some other thing. But using a little bit of awk, you can find all of the uh, lines where the status was 500 and print that out. So that's cool. Uh, they also look at using Go access for real-time log visualization. So it's also possible to use the program Go Access to view logs in real time uh, with much different information. And it's a really awesome program and they show you how you can parse the date and time format and what the log format is uh, and make something cool. Mm, nice so it's in the end, uh, I was originally using RelayD before trying Nginx with the stream module. While RelayD worked fine, it doesn't provide uh, any of the logs like Nginx does. And you know, having that flexibility and being able to use Go Access and get real time information is really nice. I'm uh, really happy with the use of Nginx because it's a very versatile program and it shows that it's more than just an HTTP server. Um, for a minimal setup, I would still recommend using something lighter like Relady. But you know, in in Scale Engine's case, we were already running Nginx to serve the HTTPS in the same jail. Uh, so being able to have the existing daemon just also happen to do the stream stuff for us was really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you have already Nginx servers running, then you can extend it a bit more with functionality. Yeah, I see a lot of use cases for this, and not just uh, the ones you described, but general uh, Nginx passing TCP and UDP to something else is uh, good to know. Uh, next, we have the HardenBSD March 2021 status report. Uh, written by Sean Webb, and he writes, This month I worked on finding and fixing the regression that caused kernel panics on our package builders. Uh, I think uh, I found the issue. I made it so that the hardened BSD AMD64 kernel just included generic so that we follow FreeBSD's toggling of features. Doing so added Q macro, uh, Q underscore macro underscore debug underscore trash to our kernel config. That option is the likely culprit. If the next package build with the option removed completes, I will commit the change that removes QMacro debug trash from the hardened BSD AMD64 kernel. I still have one new server to set up. I plan to use it for our 12 stable builds. I enabled the 14 current slash ARM64 nightly builds, and we are now completed two production package builds. I'm giving a virtual presentation on 7th of April 2020. Hey, that was today. Right, report this. <laughs> okay, he's giving uh, the title Hardened BSD 2021 State of the Hardened Union. It details the work we've been doing since the last Hardened BSD State of the Union. As part of that presentation, I'd like to highlight areas in which Hardened BSD is used. If you or your employer uses Hardened BSD and would like me to add a slide about it, please reach out to me. Okay, by this time it's a bit late for that, but there's probably, uh, he's definitely interested in uh, people using it and you could do a follow-up presentation. Continuing. In April, I plan to focus on the ports tree. I'm going to audit all the ports that fail to build and determine if it 
can easily or you can easily get them to build. A large number of ports ignore our settings slash fpick and fpy compiler flags and subsequently fail to build. So that's the position uh, independence okay. executable. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, cool. So uh, next up, we have detailing the behavior of Unix signals. Uh, so when Unix is mentioned in this document, it refers to macOS or Linux uh, as they are mainly used Unixes at the moment. Uh, feeling a little left out there <laughs> or attacked. Ah. Anyway, uh, when shell is mentioned, it usually means bash or ZSH. Most demos are written in C for macOS with Apple libc and Linux with glibc. Anyway, the sig uh, signal is a function defined in libc. Sig action is a function defined by POSIX. Uh, sig action is able to specify uh, many detailed behaviors of a signal while the signal uh, function can't. As a libc function signal behaves differently across different systems, thus don't use it as the portability uh, there just isn't there. Uh, so sig action is probably better. This document narrows the environment down to just uh, the macOS Apple libc and Linux with glibc. The behavior of signal is uh, determined then. Thus so signal is used to demonstrate uh, for conciseness. But anyway, so they talk a little bit about the difference between a pending, uh, pending and blocking signals. A process has two bitmaps, the pending and blocked. Uh, sending a signal to a process is just setting the corresponding bit in the pending uh, field. So the pending field is basically an array of one bit for every signal. And if the signal is being sent to the process, it gets changed to one. Uh, this also means, I think, that if the same signal gets sent twice before it gets processed, uh, it, the second one won't really do anything. But anyway, uh, blocking a signal is setting the corresponding bit in the blocked field to one. The process checks uh, the pending field for everything that's not blocked to find which signals are ready to be delivered. Making a signal delivered is resetting the corresponding bit in the pending field to zero. And then, and if a handler is set for that specific signal, uh, block the signal, then invoke the handler. Finally, unblock the signal after the handler has returned. If the signal is set to be ignored, then we do nothing. If the process doesn't specify anything, perform a default action, which might be nothing or killing the process. So, uh, for example, this is how SIG info works on FreeBSD, right? When you press Control T when a process is running, it uh, calls that program and sends it, hey, SIG info happened. Uh, if the program has no handler set, then it'll just do nothing. But if it's cool and has a SIG info handler, it can also print out some information about what it's doing. For example, the CB command will print out, you know, I'm 37% done copying this file. Uh, and that can be really handy. Anyway, uh, the loop keep running even if it's process. Uh, is running a handler. The above text describes most behaviors of signals installed by the signal function on modern Unix. Uh, most of them can be modified by calling sig action instead of signal. For example, sig action can specify which extra signals to block while handling it uh, by setting the sa mask variable, uh, where to restart automatically an interrupted system call by using the sa restart flag, and so on. See this man page for sig action for more details. If a signal with the same signal number are sent to a process twice within a short enough duration that the second signal arrives before the first one is delivered, the second arrival will be ignored because the corresponding pending bit is already set to one. If the second signal arrives while handling the first one, it will be delivered after the first one is finished processing. A handler with an 
uh, a handler will be interrupted by handling another unblocked signal because the loop keeps running while the handler is running. After the new handler returns, the old one resumes. So for example, uh, you know, control T sig info can be interrupted by control C sig term. Signals can also be ignored by a process. For example, you can set uh, sig alarm to be ignored. Uh, this, what does ignoring uh, actually mean? It is basically setting an empty function as the signal handler, or is it some special flag? And the answer is that it varies across systems. On macOS, ignoring is more like a special flag. It clears the corresponding bit in the pending bitmap and prevents subsequent arrival of the signal by updating the pending flag. Uh, thus, if a signal arrives at a, at a process and blocks and ignores it, the arrival will not be handled even later when the process unblocks it and installs some handler for it. On Linux, ignoring a signal is more like setting an empty function as a handler. It also clears the corresponding bit in the pending bitmap, but does not prevent subsequent arrival of uh, updates to the pending field. And then I also call, talk about what happens if a syscall interrupts a handler in the middle and what happens uh, as you fork an exec, does the, your mask get carried over and where it might be different there. And they have examples of, you know, where the output of macOS and the output of Linux differ and how that might mess you up. Uh, and also talk about resuming a stop process. So a process can't ignore or reset a handler for sig stop. When sig stop is sent to a process, the process will be stopped and suspended, just like pressing control Z in a terminal. Uh, the default behavior for sig stop is to suspend the process, but it can be reset by the process. Uh, a stop process resumes with a sig continue. The behavior of sending a signal other than signal continue to, uh, to a stop process also differs. So, you know, what happens if you send uh, sig info to a process that's stopped? Uh, and that can depend on the system as well. And it talks about some of the other signals that you might see, like sig child, uh, sig int, sig hup, uh, what happens if, a, you know, the behavior of pid1, uh, and more. So if you're interested in all the signal stuff, uh, this article seems to have done a, a pretty good job of talking about the uh, Linux and macOS versions and be interesting to see what might be different on uh, BSD as well. Yep. That is, uh, they, I know they have some different signal numbering, but uh, there's probably more, especially uh, SIG info. You know what also works with SIG info? Tarsnap. <laughs> yeah, so this week's episode is brought to you by Tarsnap, uh, which is the online backup for the truly paranoid. Uh, I use it extensively to back up my important personal and business documents. Uh, you know, because those are mostly documents, there's a couple of bigger PDFs, but in general, they're mostly small files. In total, I'm backing up about two gigabytes of data. And so it costs me something like 1.7 cents a day. <laughs> Yeah, not uh, much. <laughs> uh, what's really nice is the way Tarsnap works. Because I basically just run it on my entire directory of files every day. Uh, a couple times a day, actually. But So it reads all those files and looks at them and then figures out how to segment the files. So what really makes Tarsnap special is an algorithm that Colin came up with uh, when he was at Oxford um, to find basically the different natural block size of each file. Um, so normally when we, uh, look at sending data from a file, 
we just arbitrarily split it up on some size, like every four kilobytes or every 128 kilobytes or something, like the record size in ZFS. Uh, but Colin's algorithm actually looks at the file and finds where the natural breaks are. Um, and that block size is dynamic. Like each chunk can be split up differently. It, you don't just say, all right, this whole file is made up of 1K blocks. It actually finds where things change. So by doing that, it can find the smallest difference between the previous version of the file and the current version of the file. And that way it only has to back up the data that changed. Whereas, uh, you know, if you're doing say 8K chunks, if you change a couple hundred bytes of the file and it happens to straddle the border of two 8K chunks, you now have to upload 16K to the cloud for that file, even though you only changed a couple hundred bytes. Uh, so Colin's algorithm will find the smaller chunk and do that segmentation. Then it does the deduplication to avoid sending any chunks that haven't changed, uh, and it hashes all those blocks and then compresses the content. So even though you're only having to send a couple hundred bytes that changed, or the whole natural segment that changed, uh, you compress it first to make it take even less space. So after you've done the deduplication to eliminate any blocks that you already have backed up uh, and you don't need to send again, it compresses what does need to be backed up. Then it encrypts it and signs it and sends it out to the cloud. So when you need to get it back from the cloud, uh, only someone that has the decryption key can actually uh, get it back from the cloud. And the signature allows you to make sure that no one in the cloud messed with your data. Uh, and so you're sure that the backup you're getting back is the exact one that you sent and hasn't been modified in any way. Yep. Right? It's like we say, you know, trust but verify. You know, you don't really trust the cloud, so you encrypt all your data before you send it with a key that never leaves your computer. And when you get the data back, you verify the signature to make sure the cloud hasn't screwed it up somehow. Uh -huh. And so you can be, yeah, you can be safe using the data on the public cloud because, you know, it was all encrypted with a key that only you have. And, you know, you know, as a feature that if you lose that key, then you can never restore that data. And that means that anybody else who doesn't have that key can't restore that data either. Yep. And that makes the paranoid people happy. And if they are even more paranoid, then they can also look at the source code for the important bits that make up Tarsnap and see if there are any backdoors or something that is out of the ordinary. But you probably won't find anything. Okay, that is uh, now going into our feedback and questions section. Uh, we receive feedback, but we would like to receive a bit more because we have future episodes to fill. And uh, anything about BSDs, any questions you might have about the show, about Unix, any strange errors you're seeing on your systems, uh, send all this to feedback at bsdnado.tv or anything you found on the web that we should cover is also very welcome. Uh, the first uh, that we have here in this week is Andrew with a flat pack uh, topic. And he writes, hi, Benedict and Alan. Nice podcast. I enjoy every episode. Thank you. I use FreeBSD as a desktop daily driver, although I often have to supplement with Linux for apps that are missing. So this is my question. Flatpak has changed the Linux game for me and others in that we can use nearly any distro, but still access apps that would be horrific or impossible to build otherwise. Spotify, Steam, VLC, Zoom, and so on. I've read on the forum that Flatpak is hard to port to FreeBSD, but is it impossible? If there's a lot of work, wouldn't it be much less than maintaining all these packages independently? My technical grasp is limited, but from the user's standpoint, Flatpak would be uh, or would solve a host of limitations and strengthen FreeBSD's potential as a daily driver. 
Well, I think the first question is, uh, most people that use FreeBSD probably don't actually know what a Flatpak is. I imagine even many people that use Flatpak don't actually know what goes into building one. And so it's hard to answer that question because I don't actually know much about how a Flatpak works. It somewhat sounds to me like a really, really old idea that Chris Moore came up with, of the PBI, which was basically an archive that was the program and all of its dependencies in a thing. Kind of, I guess I think it's somewhat similar to how DMGs work on on Apple, but it was basically the whole application in a way that you could just extract it in a directory and be able to run it from that directory. Um, it's interesting. Some of some flat packs might be able to made be made to work using the Linux jails uh, and Linux um, compatibility layer in FreeBSD, such that the existing flat pack of Spotify might be able to be made to just work uh, on FreeBSD under the Linux emulation. Whereas if you're talking about trying to build native FreeBSD versions of these applications, then it probably doesn't make sense to try to use something like Flatpak because we already have a package building infrastructure. Um, I think the biggest problem you end up with doing something like that is if the Flatpak becomes the only way to get the application. Uh, because then it becomes very hard to use it in any way other than the way it comes in the flat pack. You know, for example, VLC probably doesn't need a flat pack per se. You know, that Does tends to build fairly well uh, independently. Whereas obviously things like Spotify, Steam, and Zoom are very uh, commercial and, you know, they're closed source in the end and are more difficult to deal with uh, in that regard. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, the the first thing is is that somebody would have to explain to us what a flat pack is and what like what's actually inside it and how it works. Um, I think part of my understanding is that the flat pack has some dependencies on Linux specific things that aren't that easy in FreeBSD, uh, but it it might be uh, a solution. I don't know. Yeah, I know from the foundation side, because we sponsored the work on the Linux later, which is mostly finished, but we will continue to upgrade it to be compatible with the latest Ubuntu versions or the most popular Linux distros to be able to um, keep it updated to the changes happening there. But this is, um, Flatpak is different or special in that it allows more. Um, well, it's, it's basically avoiding using each OS's package manager. Yeah. Which right. I'm not sure is a great idea, but um, I understand how it came about. You know, if you're Steam, you don't want to have to build a package for Ubuntu and a package for Debian and a package for Fedora and a package for SUSE yeah. and so on. Well, uh, but we've seen good reports from the um, gaming community uh, on FreeBSD that the new compatibility uh, that uh, Linux later has now provided more games for them to run. Uh, older games, I have to say, but. Yeah, it's it's still a catching up game, and well, there's a nice pun there, but <laughs> you can see where this is going. Um, if there's more compatibility for this, and I'm not sure how difficult it is, then maybe Flatpak would be an option. But since there's a lot of proprietary components in there from proprietary vendors, it's more difficult to, as Alan said, build it in an open way to reproduce it in, an, in a different operating system that doesn't support Flatpak. Uh, but definitely, uh, thank you for your question. And uh, next up is Chris with a Mac and TrueNAS question. And Chris writes, Hi, Alan and Benedict. Love your show. I have a few questions for you. 
Thank you, and sure. Uh, uh, he asks, I have a 4 terabyte TrueNAS box and I'm recently having trouble connecting to it over SMB protocol from my new M1 MacBook Pro. It worked for several months. Then after a recent Big Sur update, something changed and now the connection just times out. However, I can use the old SIFS protocol, which works but is slower and frequently disconnects. I filed a bug report with Apple but haven't heard back. Okay. Um... I don't know what the solution there might be. Um, I know that I've only ever had problems the other way around, where um, newer clients wouldn't connect, or uh, older clients couldn't connect to the TrueNAS because it uh, the default in Samba now is to require at least protocol version 2, I think. Um, and if you have a client that only speaks version 1, you have to do some extra configuration to enable the older SMB stuff. I don't know why a newer client would be having trouble. Um, reading the Samba logs on the TrueDAS might shed some light, although I've uh, never had much luck understanding the logs in the Samba. I guess easiest question is, do you have a different client you could test from to see something else? Uh, make sure you can ping it and, and connect to the port and everything uh, as well to just ensure it's not some firewall or general networking issue not related to Samba itself. Yeah, that's not just on the MacBook side, but... Because, yeah, timing out would be weird. Like, you'd expect either an error negotiating the encryption or just uh, an error it's not allowed uh, or something rather than just a timeout. So, hard to say. So, on a previous MacBook Pro from 2012, over the course of various OS updates, uh, he had success with NFS for a while. Then after that broke, he got SMB to work. Oh, so you're switching because of breakages. Okay. Do either of you use Big Sur on a Mac connected to TrueNAS? I have the Big Sur on the Mac, but I don't have the TrueNAS side. So I cannot verify that. Um, but it could very well I be... I don't actually know what version my Mac is off the top of my head. I don't use it very often. Don't update. Um... Uh, <laughs> I think it does connect to my FreeBSD running Samba, but it's not TrueNAS. It's just vanilla FreeBSD. Yeah. Um, but I don't have anything with an M1 chip. Yeah, I bought the M1 and that has the Pixar on it already. So I think it's a, an update that Apple made that broke it. But uh, yeah, so if it works for us, if it is the M, yeah, is it M1 chip? I can't say it's not my use case. What is the best protocol to use between Mac and TrueNAS? NFS, SMB, SIFS, Apple Talk? If I decide to use Apple uh, Talk. Not Apple Talk. I would say probably Samba and then NFS. Both should work. SIFS is the same as Samba, really. So I don't know why one is working and one isn't. Yeah. It's a little confusing. What, but, I, uh, what I know. NFS should work too. Yeah. So what I know is I'm using Apple Talk for Apple's um, uh, time, what's it called? Time Machine backup. And that still works with the old tutorial that Dan Langell has on his blog. So that still works from uh, the M1. Uh, but this is probably Apple uh, Talk and some extra bits in there. Uh, so if he decides to use Apple Talk, if it's still supported, is it risky to share the same file via over NFS, Samba, and Apple Talk? I've been sharing between Windows and Linux for a very long time using NFS and Samba with no issues. No, I don't think this is a problem. It shouldn't be any issues unless you're actually modifying the same file via both at the same time because their locking might not talk to each other very well, but it's unlikely to be the problem. Uh, so no, like... Uh, I use Samba NF NFS mixed on my file server all the time. Yeah, so I'm fairly sure it will be on the Apple side when they provide a new update. Maybe it's fixed um, or someone but else. As far as for debugging it, as final part of his question was about debugging yeah. it, uh, TCB dump might be your best friend to figure out 
you know, are you getting messages back from the TrueNAS at all when you try to connect to it from the Mac? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that might help you understand, you know, I, am I sending packets and not getting anything back? Am I sending packets getting back and it's an error? Uh, or am I sending stuff and getting back the expected response and then the client's just not doing something with it? So TCB dump is probably your best starting point for uh, what's happening. Mm -hmm. And if anyone else has had this problem or knows a solution to this, then we would be happy to follow up on this. Uh, so send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv as well. So we can uh, link to... Okay, um, then next is Robert with some questions. Okay. Hello, Robert. Robert writes, hello, folks. I heard Benedict mention that if the mailing... Oh, mailback gets low, it makes you all very sad. Yes, you listened. Excellent. And uh, it's what I said. So here are some questions I have had for a while. First, what graduate program have faculty who are FreeBSD committers? I hear from time to time about people doing their uh, Master of Science or PhD uh, on some FreeBSD related topic, and I think this could be appealing to me. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple different places that have FreeBSD in the curriculum. I don't know all of them off the top of my head. Uh, you know, obviously, Robert Watson's stuff at Cambridge is very FreeBSD based. Uh, I know John Baldwin was teaching in San Francisco pre-pandemic. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with that now. Uh, and there's uh, another university in California that has some FreeBSD content, although I don't know the developer or the, the professor is actually a, uh, a FreeBSD committer, but I know I've seen people come on IRC with homework questions about Geom before. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know there's a couple of FreeBSD committers. It's not a requirement, of course, to have such a university degree. And I'm fairly uh, impressed each time, at, or I was at conferences, when I heard people say that they didn't have a university degree at all, and their knowledge level... I don't have one. <laughs> right? Um, but that their knowledge level was on par with a university degree, as far as I could say, Um just from right, practical but if you experience. were going to do a PhD, being able to do it on a FreeBSD topic would be a lot more fun than having to do it on something else. Oh, yes, of course. So there are links to universities and we have people who could help supervise or, you know, give you a topic FreeBSD related. Uh, so reach out to to us or we to the FreeBSD Foundation. Well, they which also us? Have a, uh, that, that's well, what they're asking. They're asking who to reach out to. <laughs> right. To, to Alan and myself or to the... Uh, to well, I don't know anybody, so don't reach I can, out to me. I can help. Or... Um, okay. Yeah, I can relay it to yeah, like so, the FreeBSD Foundation. Yeah, have a you list can of... relay to this guy uh, some connection. Yeah. Okay. The next references or something. Right. So the next question he has is the FreeBSD project ideas page lists an idea for bringing Elomos stores to FreeBSD. So he gives us a link to that. Uh, can you help me figure out who wants this and why? I'm a big doors enthusiast, and I'm intrigued about the challenge of bringing them to a new platform. Oh, great! Revolving door. That's your GitHub. Um, page yeah hey wow isn't that um, great i don't know the there's no contact listed for it anymore i know it's been on uh this ideas page for a very long time it's too bad the wiki doesn't have a blame thing to see who added that idea <laughs> yeah so could he do this as a google summer of code thing maybe uh possibly he'd have to have a mentor who is interested in it and i think that's uh where the problem currently lies is there's no contact listed for that particular yeah uh, project so where could he go and ask if there's anyone so, interested in mentoring yeah it that item has been on that idea list since at least 2015 uh, so i don't know who put it there or how 
at uh, Hoffer. Current, it might still be. Yeah, but if he can, well, <laughs> he he would probably find someone. Um, so where should he go? Should he post on a certain mailing list? Well, see, nor normally, each one of these ideas has a person to contact beside it, but that one does not, because mm. I think the person has gone away because it's been many years. Too long. Uh, so I don't know who they should contact about that. Uh, but yes, probably just the FreeBSD-Current mailing list or FreeBSD-Hackers and Ask is probably uh, the best way to see if you can find anybody else who is interested in that. Yeah, especially if you have some code to show already. Uh, well, I think also a very legitimate question is what does somebody plan to use this for? Because uh, that really affects trying to build it is, is, is what the use case is. Yeah. Well, or yeah, they can, you need a good use case in order to be able to test that it's actually doing what you want it to do. Or people on the so mailing yes, list. I would say asking on the mailing list to yeah. see if anybody's still interested in it or knows enough about it to maybe consider being the mentor. Yeah, if that's relevant today or discuss your idea with it. Um, but yeah, could very well be that this this, this happens a little later than uh, when it was posted. But yeah, if you're offering then, or you find something else in a similar kind of topic, uh, yeah, this should be possible. So yeah, thank you for that question. And that pretty much wraps up this episode. Uh, thank you all for listening, sending us feedback and questions as always, and wait for our next episode. <laughs>